there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Nils, help me with this. Myla, Anya, make yourselves useful. Pull out those poles and stakes, help us with the tent. Aren't you boys supposed to do that? And what about you? You're just supposed to sit there and look pretty? That's the plan. I like it. But I still need your help. Will we all fit in there? It will be snug, but yes. I don't mind getting close to you. Ah, uh, Myla, you pretend to be coy, but I've seen you with a couple drinks in you. Seppo, stop! What would your mother say if she knew you were out here with the likes of Nils and me? She wouldn't say anything. I don't believe that. Well, she won't find out. I told her I was staying at Anya's house for the weekend. And I told my mom I was staying with you. What a fine pair of liars we've got, Nils. Mm-hmm. Stop. I'm only teasing. This is a good-looking tent. Looks even better from the inside. Seppo, I swear. I have to say, I love getting out of the city. Me too. Shall we go for a swim? I'm only going to put my feet in. Let's make a fire first. Then we'll have something to warm up by. It's so quiet out here. I'm not used to it. Just wait till the sun goes down. The following story is one that has become a popular campfire tale that actually revolves around a campfire, or at the very least, a campsite, on the grounds of the Oita Manor House located in Espo, Finland. On Saturday, June 4, 1960, four teenagers, two couples, camped out along the shore of Lake Bodum. No longer adolescents, and yet not quite adults, the four set out to enjoy a night under the stars away from their parents, free to say and do whatever they liked. Fooling around in a tent was probably one activity the two couples had in mind. Being viciously attacked and murdered by an unknown assailant was obviously not. And what started out as a normal weekend for a group of teenagers turned into a horrific bloodbath. A triple homicide that would go down in history as Finland's most famous unsolved murder. That's right, a triple homicide. Although four people entered the campsite on that summer day in 1960, three were found dead. One survived. But not even the sole survivor could shed much light on this troubling case. But that doesn't mean there wasn't any light at all. No, in fact, this case has many seemingly promising leads and features, multiple confessions, as well as suicides. That's right, multiple. And yet the killer has never been identified. So we'll leave it up to you to decide who could have been the culprit of such a brutal and shocking crime. Only the waters of Lake Bodum and the trees of Oita know the truth. And they're not talking. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. 
This is our first episode on the Lake Bodum murders. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. The year was 1960. Globally, it was a year of change. John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon ran against each other for the U.S. presidency, and JFK won, becoming the youngest person ever elected president. Leonid Brezhnev became president of the Soviet Union. When his U.S. spy plane was shot down over Soviet Union territory, pilot Gary Powers was captured and then traded for the Russian spy Rudolf Abel. The 60s, in large part, revolved around the Cold War and the space race, and all eyes were on these two massive and drawn-out events. Europe itself was under the spotlight during the fallout from World War II. But Finland, which shares a border with Sweden and Russia, seemed to stay out of the limelight. It did, however, fight alongside Germany against the Soviet Union during World War II. This makes sense considering Finland's history with the Soviet Union. Yes, in 1809, the Russian Empire conquered Finland in the Finnish War, which led to Finland becoming an autonomous Grand Duchy of Russia. This basically meant that Russia controlled Finland's legislation moving forward, but that the small country could keep its former laws and legal customs. The Finnish people were basically trapped when it came to making any legislative reforms. Finland eventually gained its independence in 1917, after the Russian Revolution. Aside from these two events mentioned, Finland has never been a very loud country. Yes, in fact, I have to admit, I didn't know much about Finland before this case. Well, it's a very small country population-wise. Yes, with currently around 5.5 million residents. Most people associate Finland with Father Christmas, wild reindeer, and the magnificent northern lights. And while those are pretty incredible, Finland is also known for its saunas. Saunas? That's right. A good soak and esteem are staples in Finland. A trip to the sauna is not considered a luxury, but a common necessity. The entire country has over three million of them. Very interesting. Finland is also home to the creator of one of the most addictive games in the world, Angry Birds. The digital sensation was created by Rovio Entertainment in the capital city of Helsinki. But more importantly, Finland has become one of the leading countries in education in the 21st century. In fact, experts often credit it with having the best education system in the world. Almost 50 years ago, the Finnish government enacted education reforms in the hopes of improving the economy. Despite all this, Finland tends to go under the radar when it comes to world events. Compared to other countries, this was especially true in the early 1900s. That is, until one of its prized natural landmarks became the setting for what seems like something straight out of a horror movie. Lake Bodum is near the city of Espo, which lies about 22 kilometers west of Helsinki, Finland's capital. Various Instagram photos from today showcase the beauty and wonder of Lake Bodum, posted by visitors who enjoy Oita's stunning natural recreational area. The lake is just one part of this serene paradise. Pine trees abound in a dense forest along the coast. But in the summer of 1960, The beauty of these grounds was overshadowed by the ugliness and terror that occurred. Three young lives were cut short in a most awful way. 
The other life was forever damaged by the horrific experience. On June 4, 1960, two 15-year-old girls, Anya Tulicki Mackey and Myla Ermeli Bjorklund, joined their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo Antero Boisman and Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson, for a weekend camping trip. For clarity's sake, Anya dated Seppo. And Myla dated Nils. The four were all from Vanta, a city bordered by Helsinki and Espo. The plan was simple. Set up camp, enjoy the lake. Eat some grub, drink some alcohol, make out and fool around, do what typical teenagers do. The trouble was the four were pretty isolated out there. And while this isolation provided peace and less chance for disturbance, it also meant that they were vulnerable to whatever might cross their path. In this case, someone hell-bent on ending their lives. You know what happens at night down here, don't you? What? It comes up from the water. What is it? Chursas. Ugh, he doesn't exist. Then why have so many stories been written about him? So stupid boys can scare their girlfriends after dark? Speaking of boys, Nils has been gone a while. Has he? He was just going to the bathroom. We may have to go check on him. Make sure he hasn't been taken. <sighs> oh, stop. They say Tursus is bigger than the manor house, with more tentacles than you can count. And every arm has a powerful suction with spikes. Once it latches on, it won't let go. It will suck you dry. And he's not confined to the water, no. If he wants, he can sprout wings. He can grab you and take you back to his underwater lair and make you his sex slave. You're so stupid. Quiet. Did you hear that? Yeah. What is that? I don't know. Shh. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) You girls are too easy. At about 10.30 that evening, the four retired to their tent for some frisky business. Then they eventually went to bed. Be quiet. You see something? Right through there. What do you think? Hmm. It looks like a hazel grouse to me. Check the book. Distinguishable characteristics. Finely patterned plumage with gray upper parts, brown wings, and chestnut-flecked white underparts. Then that's our bird. He's a shy little fellow, isn't he? What makes you so sure he's a fellow? What's that? Sounds bigger than a bird. Don't move. Look, it's just a man. He's leaving his campsite. My dad has a tent like that. Different color, but... Come on. We better not disturb it. Let's just check off our list. Hazel Grouse. Spotted. Time? Just past six. It was the next morning, June 5th, 1960, around 6 a.m., the two young boys enjoying some bird watching spotted the tent from a distance. And they saw a man who would later be described as having long, blonde hair, walking away from the campsite. But obviously the boys didn't see anything that troubled them or didn't speak about it because they continued on with their activity. It wasn't until five hours later at 11 a.m. that someone actually witnessed the gruesome sight. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now let's continue the story. A lone jogger by the name of Risto Siren found the bodies and quickly alerted police. 
Authorities arrived on the scene around noon. They came upon the desecrated campsite. The tent had collapsed. A leg protruded out from under it, and two bodies lay on top. The fabric of the tent was covered in blood, and authorities would eventually discover that the killer had stabbed the victims from outside, through the roof and walls of the tent. Would you look at all this? I have, and I can't unsee it. I'm not going to lie. I've never seen something like this. Out here, it's, it's not normal. This place is supposed to be an escape, not a death trap. Just some young kids looking for a good time. Terrible to think it could happen to anyone. Yep, especially here. You want to write the report? Sure. Take this down. First victim, female, approximately 14 to 17 years of age. Found naked from the waist down, lying on top of a collapsed camping tent. Multiple stab wounds. Several wounds to the head, most likely by a blunt, blunt object. What is it? My brother's got a girl about the same age. My niece. I... I know. <clears throat> Let's move on to victim number two. Male, approximately 15 to 19 years of age. What the... What? moving. Oh my god. Nils, also on top of the tent next to his girlfriend Myla, was alive. He sustained several injuries, a concussion, a fractured jaw, and a deep knife wound to his forehead. He would remain in a state of shock for some time. Because of all of this, he was unable to recall any details. Well, there was one thing he said, but mind you, he was still in a state of shock at this point. He talked of seeing a vision of black and of bright red eyes coming for them. Sounds scary. And inhuman. But again, it could have been the shock. And, or the concussion. The whole ordeal, really. Nils was rushed to the hospital. His friend Seppo and Seppo's girlfriend Anya were found inside the tent. Both were stabbed several times and bludgeoned in the head. But of the three, Nils' girlfriend Myla had the most damage done to her, as if the killer had taken out the majority of aggression on her. Authorities deduced that the three had been killed sometime between 4 and 6 a.m. on June 5th. Officers eventually discovered that some items had been taken from the campsite. The killer had stolen from his victims. Their wallets and many articles of clothing were gone. But about a half a mile from the crime scene, authorities later found Nils's shoes and some of his clothing. Several other personal items, as well as the murder weapons, were never recovered. Sadly, there is not much information available on the three victims. This is probably because this case took place in Finland and not much has been written about it in the United States. But we must ask the question, is there something about their lives that gave motive to their vicious killer? In other words, did one of them have an enemy? And if so, did the killer only intend to kill one of them, but had to kill them all to cover his tracks? I don't know that we'll be able to answer that, considering the lack of information about the victims. But we can theorize nonetheless. Someone jealous of their weekend rendezvous? Perhaps a schoolmate? Considering the manner in which the killer took these young lives, and the fact that he was able to overpower all four of them, leads me to believe it wasn't somebody their age. That makes sense. More like an older, brawny man. If we're entertaining initial theories, yeah. Well, investigators entertained some of their own initial theories, and the search for a viable suspect began immediately. One of these suspects was Carl Valdemar Gilstrom. But he was also known by another name, Kiosk Man. 
He earned this title because he ran a nearby kiosk in Oita. And he was known throughout the area as the man who hated campers, especially younger ones. But mind you, he wasn't just seen as the local curmudgeon. Right, he wasn't Ed Asner's character in Up. No, Gilstrom disliked campers so much, he would throw rocks at children as they passed by. Due to his reputation and his proximity to the campsite, authorities quickly sought him out. Yes? Sorry to bother you, ma'am, but we're here to speak with your husband. He's not home at the moment. What is this regarding? An incident that occurred. When will he be home? A few hours, I suppose. Uh Uh-huh. May we ask you a few questions in the meantime? Of course. Can I get you gentlemen something to drink? We're fine. Thank you, though. Can you tell me where your husband was last night around midnight? Well, he was here, sleeping. You know that for a fact? Well, yes. I was there beside him. Mm Mm-hmm. And what about this morning, between the hours of 4 and 6 a.m.? Still sleeping. I see. And how did he seem? I beg your pardon? What was his temperament when he awoke this morning? It was nothing out of the ordinary. And what is ordinary? Quiet. Thoughtful. He takes some time to warm up so early in the day. Would you describe your husband as a happy man? I'm sorry? Your husband. Is he generally happy? He's happy enough, I suppose. Is it common for him to argue? With you? With neighbors? Maybe with some of the kids who visit the lake? My husband is not a troublemaker. No, that's not what I'm asking. I'm just wondering if you remember him getting into conflicts with people. Everyone gets into arguments. He's not fighting with people or creating conflict. Why are you asking me all of this? Okay, Mrs. Gilstrom. Thank you for your time. Is that all? Yes. Will I be expecting you again in the future? I don't think so. I appreciate you cooperating with our questions. Gilstrom was quickly eliminated from the suspect list due to the alibi his wife gave. Uh, But don't think this was the end of him. No, Gilstrom weaves his way back into this story in a most interesting way. But before that happened, there was another suspect who emerged. And this one is even more intriguing. For a number of reasons. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to our story. June 6, 1960, just one day after the murder, a man by the name of Hans Assman. Yep, that's right. A most unfortunate name. Assman is spelled with two N's, if that helps. It doesn't. For the sake of keeping in line with the tone of this story, I will be referring to him as Hans only. Very well. As you were saying, just one day after the murder, Hans arrived at the Helsinki Surgical Hospital in quite a terrible state. When he was taken in, nurses discovered that he had dirt under his fingernails and was covered in what looked to be blood. The staff was eventually interrogated by authorities. He was very nervous when he came in, aggressive even. He was quite a sight. Did he tell you how he had gotten in that state? No. I assumed... Well, I don't know. I thought maybe he'd gone hunting or had some accident. Did he tell you anything that you think might be useful? He didn't. He didn't talk much. I'm sorry, I wish there was something. Thank you. This has been helpful. Officer! The doctors confirmed it. Confirmed what? It was blood. All over his clothes. Yes. Thank you. 
Okay, so this Hans character stumbles into a hospital looking worse for the wear, with dirt under his nails and blood all over his clothes. This was extremely suspicious, right? Incredibly. Okay, here's what we know about Hans. He was born December 9th, 1923. He was a German who actually immigrated to Finland and definitely lived there in the 1950s and 60s. And also, he was an alleged KGB spy and former Nazi. Quite the backstory. Right? Some of you may remember the discussion on the KGB during our unsolved murder on the Somerton Man. For those who don't know what the KGB is, here's a quick history lesson. The KGB was the Soviet Union's secret and foreign intelligence agency. It operated from 1954 to 1991. It was, for all intents and purposes, an independent agency with little intrusion by the Russian leaders. It was used primarily for intelligence gathering and border security. It was essentially known as the secret police and domestic surveillance unit. It was made up of international spies who were tasked with gathering information. Those suspected of being anti-communist were investigated by the KGB. The KGB often demanded entrance into homes and then searched them for any evidence of dissidents. The main goal was to keep the ideology of the Soviet Union alive and intact. And to address and eliminate any threats to that goal. So it was believed that Hans was a member of the KGB. According to writer Matty Pallaro, a former police officer, Hans contacted him in December of 1997 and asked him to take down the details of his life story. Pallaro has stated that Hans told him he was a guard at Auschwitz during World War II. But allegedly, Hans fell in love with a Jewish prisoner and became disenchanted with his participation in mass murder. His relationship was eventually discovered, and he was sent to the Eastern Front to fight the Russians. Which, in World War II, was usually the equivalent of a death sentence. He was then captured by Russian Soviets and thrown into a prison camp. And it was here, he said, he decided to become a spy. So that is supposedly how Hans became involved with the KGB. But his story doesn't end there. Hans has been linked to two other unsolved murder cases in Finland. Let's take a moment to process how intense that is. Yeah, in total, he's been associated with three unsolved murders. That's almost unheard of, right? Well, it's not common, that's for sure. Aside from the Lake Bodum murders, here is the other quite famous case Hans is linked to. The unsolved murder of Auli Kaliki Sari. Sari was a 17-year-old Finnish girl who went missing on May 17, 1953, from her hometown of Isioki. She was last seen riding a bike home from a prayer meeting. It is believed that she was attacked on her way home. The theory arose that the perpetrator had a sexual motive, but no evidence ever corroborated this idea. And although she went missing on May 17th, it wasn't until October 11th, almost five months later, that her body was discovered in a swamp. Hans was one of the three main suspects. Here's why. Hans' wife reported that Hans and his chauffeur were near the town of Isioki on March 17th, when Sari went missing. She also reported that one of his socks was missing when he returned home. And his shoes were wet, even though it had not been raining. It was all very suspicious. Also, there were several witnesses who reported seeing a car at the supposed murder scene. A light brown Opel, which is a very popular German brand. And the very vehicle Hans owned. The one his chauffeur was driving. And then there's the information from writer and former police officer Matty Pallaro, who spoke with Hans. He claims that Hans admitted to the crime. But 
It wasn't a murder. It was an accident. A car accident. As the story goes, Han's chauffeur accidentally crashed into Sari on her bicycle. To cover it up, Hans and the driver staged her death to make it look like a murder scene. They did this to lead authorities on a wild goose chase, I assume. That would be my guess. Anything to send them in a different direction. This story would make sense. Hans' car had dents in it, presumably from the accident. And according to Polaro, Hans couldn't reveal the accident because people weren't supposed to know that he was in Isioki. This is very interesting. Could this have been because he was a spy at the time? I think that that's entirely possible. So he had to cover up the accident. He couldn't get any police involved or his identity and his mission may have been uncovered. Fascinating. Mm. But again, this is all conjecture. Well, now that we all have the strange and fascinating backstory on Hans, let's return to the case at hand, the Lake Bodum murders. When we left off, Hans was, of course, being considered as a suspect. Mainly because of that bizarre incident at the hospital his blood-covered shirt, and all that dirt under his fingernails. Yes, that dirt could have come from a number of places, but, you know, where there's a lot of dirt. Out in the woods near Lake Bodum? Yes. Mm. As for the blood? Well, some have theorized that he was out hunting and had a mishap. A hunting accident could also explain the dirt under his nails. But it wasn't just the blood and the dirt, as if that wasn't enough. No, because something else was about to happen that would keep the spotlight on Hans. Remember those two boys who were bird-watching and saw the man leaving the campsite the morning of the murder? <gasps> What's that? Sounds bigger than a bird. Don't move. Look, it's just a man. He's leaving his campsite. The boys eventually described the man. This description was later confirmed by a man who was fishing nearby. He also saw the mysterious man on the Oita grounds. Neither the boys nor the man got a real good look at his face, but they remember one distinguishable characteristic. He had long, blonde hair. This description was released to the public. And after it was, Hans got a haircut. But don't get your hopes up. This is an unsolved case, if you'll recall. And remember the first suspect we mentioned? Carl Valdemar Gilstrom, the angry kiosk man who is said to have thrown rocks at children? He will rear his head in this case again. And another suspect will, one that became the frontrunner for many years. It wasn't until much later that the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation reopened the case. And developed a new theory. Key word here, theory. With this theory, they pinpointed a new man as a prime suspect. The man closest to the crime itself. The sole survivor. We'll explore this and much more as we go under the surface of this murky water, seeking clarity and answers to what actually happened at Lake Bodum. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Lake Bodum murders. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. 
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallow and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Amber Connor, Sarah Miller-Cruz, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. 